please turn your Bible to the book of Titus. We'll be in Titus chapter 3 today. Titus chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Titus 3, 1 through 8. Um, I think we have a new visitor for our worship service today, right? I see Zach and Chrissy he, he, Zach and Chrissy Yee here, and so they have Mariah, is Mariah here with you as well? Are you able to stand up? All right, introduce Mariah to us. Mariah's... Congratulations, we're glad to have her worshiping with us, and we do pray that she know the joy of the Lord all the days of her life, and been praying for you as parents. So we're looking at Titus uh, chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. So uh, it's towards the end of your Bible. Again, if you're having a hard time finding it, um, it's a really short book, actually three chapters, so we're in our last uh, two sermons of it. And then we're going to go next into the book of Genesis, back in the book of Genesis, in the life of Abraham. Um, But today we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Titus 3. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our day in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just ask for wisdom as we take this word and as we uh, apply it to our lives, as we seek to understand it, to communicate it. God, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, who of us hasn't thought that maybe the people around us have lost their mind? Have the people around us lost their mind? Maybe it was the guy at work who pushed a plan that wouldn't work, and and the time that was lost as everybody went after that, or you warned your neighbor, but, but she did it anyway. Or the disagreement that you had with your spouse, and you knew it was a bad idea. They just didn't listen. You just couldn't wait to say, I told you so. Or your kids, they didn't listen, and now look at the mess they've gotten themselves into. And don't even, or don't let us even forget to talk about the government, right? I mean, have they lost their minds? And that's what we like to think, right? When people don't do what we think they should, we like to think that they're crazy, It's also true that the world we live in is often in conflict with uh, the Word of God. 
People don't want to submit to its message, to submit to its ethic, and even leaders of the world decide in ways that conflict with it or try to hold it back or suppress it. We see this in the persecuted church around the world. Well, the letter to Titus was written to help the church get started in a violent, unsteady, and lazy place. It was on the island of Crete. And if you were to go back all the way to chapter 1, verse 12, you would see that even the Cretan people had a low view of themselves. They had a low view of their own moral character. And so, this book of Titus, this letter to Titus is given to instruct him on how he is going to get this church started. And how were believers to live out their faith in this godless island? How would they live for God in community? How would they have meaningful relationships with unbelievers to do hard work in the marketplace, to work within government systems, to, to witness to Jesus Christ that whole time? How would they relate with the broader community? That's really one question. But also, how would they relate within the church? While the church was, was full of people who wanted to serve God and wanted to do good works and, and to know him and know the forgiving grace of God, uh, that there were different backgrounds that they needed to work through. Anytime you get into a small community like the church, there's a good chance of, of causing an offense. How would they keep unity to demonstrate patience and compassion with one another? And if the nation, if the people of a nation are immoral, you know, the government leaders will be immoral. So it also affects not only the broad community, the local church, but also in terms of the government. If we know that people of a nation are immoral, the government leaders will tend to be immoral as they set improper laws. The laws and leaders tend to be a reflection of, of, of one another. And laws and governments can be a reflection of the moral character of the people they rule. Now, in starting these churches, these new believers needed to know how to interact then uh, with the world, within the church, and in the government. And they needed to see how to thrive within that system. And that's why we see some instructions given to us in Titus 3, 1 and 2. How are they to live? Titus 3 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. So you see the first thing he focuses on, these, these instructions are to be uh, submissive to rulers and authority. They need to recognize the place of the civil government for the good of society. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, they remind us of the place of government authority as instituted by God um, for the good of people. It's not something which is just instituted by man, but it's instituted by God. And there's a needful response to it to recognize that authority has been, to, to, has, has been given there. Now, we know that there are exceptions when... There are times we don't always obey or submit or honor all of it. You know, and the Bible has a place for civil disobedience. And uh, there are exceptions that are given. But we notice the focus here in the passage. The instruction here is not to focus on the, the exceptions, but to focus on the rule. In fact, the New Testament regularly encouraged submission of the government leaders as a rule, with, with exceptions being the rarity. Now, that's the standard Submission and obedience to the government officials unless there's a rare and clear and biblically compelling reason not to do so. Now, the reason is shown to us in verse 1, so that we can be ready for every good work. They want, is, Titus is considering leading the church here. They want to avoid the problem 
where believers get in, um, get in trouble with the law for petty crimes or, or when they work or they get all worked up over small uh, legal matters. Because every time they do this, they lose track of their bigger mission, which is the mission of Jesus Christ, of worshiping him, of making him known, of the works they have in their community. And they can lose track of that if they get wrapped up in all these other things in, in their lives. There's a simple call for believers to work here within government system to the best of their ability so they can worship Christ and they can love their neighbor. It's about keeping the main thing the main thing. It's a challenge for us to, to consider spending more time in knowing and serving our neighbors and those who are around us than fighting through national headlines we may have no control over. I mean, this verse is here for a reason. Evidently, there was a faction that was within the church, at least a faction that wanted to resist government authority. Maybe it was for crime. Maybe it was just a resistance to the rules that were let down. And given the character of the Cretan people, I, I have no doubt that there were problems that were set out by uh, the government that was there. You know, probably the system they had was nowhere close to the one that we have here. Imagine when this was written that Emperor Nero was emperor of the, the Roman Empire. You know, he was the one who would eventually um, light the streets of Rome by using the, the, the bodies of Christians hung on crucifixes and, and, and lighting the streets of Rome with them. He was the one who would eventually uh, murder the author of this letter by cutting off his head, the Apostle Paul. And yet, even given that context this here, we see the rule is to submit and obey. So we see there, submit and obey for good work's sake. To know your neighbor then, to know his needs, and to help him with those things. You know, when is the right time to engage? When is the right time to deal with one of those exceptions? Well, even then, it's going to become more about our neighbors and good works. It's about their good. And we want to do it through the legal process as much as we can. It's all part of that picture that he's laying down here for us. But the exhortation is bigger than just the government. Um, it was supposed to be a pattern of life. We see that in verse 2. Again, just read verse 2 again. Remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The word here for speaking evil is blasphemo, as in to blaspheme, like to, to blaspheme God or to speak disrespectfully of God, to, to speak evil of him or to speak lowly or lightly of him. Blasphemo, speaking evil of another person. And what, he, what we can see him saying here is we're, that the believers um, in the island of Crete are not to drag other people's names through the mud. They're not, intent, they're not supposed to make other people look bad. You know, he's talking about, you know, conversations about believers or unbelievers in this case. You know, even the, the government leaders that they might disagree with, that they weren't to speak evil about them. And it's the same rule that we've been given today. You know, we're called to challenge bad ideas, ungodly ideas, um, Ideas that hurt other people, we're called to challenge those. And we don't have to be pushovers with them. We're always to be kind, to deal with differences in a way that honors God. We're to preserve the good name of the people around it, and certainly the image of God that is in them. That's something that we're really bad at these days, isn't it? If you look at some of the discourse we have about one another, especially as it shows up online, you know, we can spew out all kinds of evil statements about people, maligning people and, and tearing them down. And what is being shown here for, the, for the, uh, this church in Crete is it shouldn't be for Christians, shouldn't be for the believers. 
the, the political theater that we are all in, it wants to speak evil about others that we disagree with, and that should not be. We deal with issues, we deal with beliefs, we deal with laws and convictions, but we respect, always understanding that there's an image of God in the person that we're speaking about, you know, to be spoken evil of. As Ephesians 6 says, our struggle's not against flesh and blood. It's not against that, that necessarily just against that person, but it says it's against that spiritual forces of evil. We deal with spiritual forces, spiritual ideas, spiritual problems in a spiritual way. And the Bible reminds us here in the way that we speak with others, kindness and we'll see in courtesy. So it's a good deal how we uh, deal publicly, you know, with others in the public discourse. It could also be with the way that we speak with somebody as close to us as, say, a spouse, right? Do we think badly or even speak badly about another person? We should never simply imply that they are evil or stupid because of minor disagreements. If they inconvenience us or, or do something we might disagree with, it doesn't mean that we have to instantly go in attack mode over, over small things. I remember guidance that Julie and I got when we were first engaged. It was the reminder that your spouse is not your enemy. And it was really helpful statement. Your spouse is not your enemy because there is a real enemy. And he's called the devil. And he would love to kill and destroy and to wreck. And he loves to do all those things. And don't look at your spouse as the enemy. He's the enemy that we have to deal with. But we could also deal with how we talk about other believers. We might find that we disagree with other people. They might do something we disagree with, but we never have the right to speak badly about them. Again, it's not about ignoring bad behavior, false doctrine, or covering over abuse, but we deal honestly with the issue that's in front of us without tearing the other person down, right? In one sense, we're speaking well about them because we expect more out of them. We expect they're the image of God. And we respect that image, but we also speak of them as if they should be faithfully in an image of God. You know, we think well of them, the best that we're able. Now, verse 2 goes on beyond not speaking evil about others, but talking about quarreling, trying to get our own way over small matters, but ignoring the, the bigger issues of unity and togetherness. You know, when we think that we're right and others are wrong, or when we think our job is to get everyone right, then there's a, if we have a spirit of perfectionism, uh, then we enter into quarrelsome attitudes, Reminded we don't always have to correct people and to get them in line. You know, we don't have to set everybody right. We're not God. Jesus still reigns. We're not their Holy Spirit. And, and even as, if they are as clueless as you might think that they are at that moment, um, that you can address it without being contentious. Another quality the passage commends to the church is gentleness. The ability to correct and stand comfort without doing harm. This ability to lead without forcing people to do what you want. It's about working with people where they are instead of demanding they be where you are. I was, I was pretty struck by these next words then. The next words, if you see them, to show perfect courtesy. You know, wow, perfect courtesy, a complete courtesy. You know, and I look at my own life. I, I have a terrible habit. I have a number of terrible habits. Some of them, you might see this one. I interrupt people, and I do it way too much. And I'm thankful for my wife who points it out when I, when, when, when I do it. You know, but to show perfect courtesy, I mean, we can look at our lives and find some bit of our lives where we say, you know what, I'm not always as courteous as I ought to be. You know, but courtesy is what? It's respecting that person who's there in front of you. You know, 
you know, courtesy is good manners because we want to love other people in, in small ways. We're courteous to others whether we think that they deserve it or not. You know, it's that person who might cut you off in traffic. It's, it's that, it's that um, person at the restaurant who uh, messes up your order. You know, it's that person that you're in a conflict with over the project that you're working on. It's that person on the basketball court that you're playing sports with. Courtesy to all people, even if they don't respect you or they don't respect themselves, we treat them with courtesy. That's because we know rudeness doesn't solve problems. We elevate discourse. We speak well of others. We listen to people, right? And we don't just treat our friends with kindness. Notice who it speaks about. Verse 2 says, all people, right? All people, no matter their skin color, no matter how much money they have. No matter their rank or their gender, their political position, their religion, even their own sense of perceived sexual identity. Even if they hurt you, there's a, there's a, 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 a way that we treat others who are there in front of us. Right? Even if they have tattoos all over their face and they act foolishly, so have an obligation to treat people with respect and with love, online as well as in person. Now, how much does it matter that we act this way? If you look down at verse 8, verse 8 talks about it. It says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good work. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's important to do good. We don't get wrapped up in legal problems to focus on conspiracies outside of our control, worthless controversies, or unnecessary arguments. If you're spending on time, you're a lot of time on things that are outside of your control, we're missing the mark, but looking at the things that are around us, getting involved locally, knowing the people around us, even as different as they are, and loving and witnessing to them. It's not to say that we're not going to have controversies, not to say that we shouldn't have beliefs or convictions but that our goal is good works and a theology that leads to good works. You know, those are the possibilities we bring into the world. Those are profitable, he says. When we worry about things that are outside of our control, we miss out on the little things that are within our control, things we can do something about. We do the small things, and they make a difference. All right, so believe it or not, all that's my introduction. All right, so... But it's important, and the reason why it's important is because the way the Bible often works is there's a law, right? There's a rule that's given, right? And then it talks about the grace and the gospel that helps you to do it, right? And so as he talks about those things that are there, what you see in the next verses, in verse 1 and 2, that's kind of what we need to do. And you look at the next verse and it says, all right, well now, can I have this rule? And, and it actually is probably harder than you think it is sometimes. Um, you know, when that guy cuts you off or when the government tells you to do something you don't want to do or something like that. So what do you need to remember when you do it? What's the motivation? What's the strength? What's the gospel to help us to do that? And that's where he goes into in the next verses. Why should we treat others well? Why do we treat sinners, unbelievers, government authorities, crazy people well? And the answer is answered in a bit of anthropology, something about us, and a little soteriology, something about your salvation. All right, so we want to look at that. That's really our two points if you're following along in the bulletin. All right, so the first thing 
is to remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. We see this in verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You know, maybe you've heard that expression, there but for the grace of God go I. This is kind of a Bible's way of, of saying something similar. There but for the grace of God go I. You know, you see that person begging in the streets. You see the person making trouble in his family, blatantly working against God's commands. You know, that could be you. And the reason why, as the Bible indicates, as this verse indicates, is that same nature that is, that is within that other person is also within you. You have that same nature, this foolish and selfish, the one that's capable of sin and evil. That nature is in all of us. And unless the grace of God delivers us from that nature, or at least restrains us from it, we will express that sinful nature in some of the most heinous ways. And we know that's true. That's because no matter how long we've been a Christian, we know that sin keeps coming out. That's what the Bible says in Romans 6, in Romans 7, that our, that our old sinful nature is, has may have been crucified with Christ, and yet we still have these old habits that come up, and they bubble up, and, 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 and the inner sin, inner sin comes out and manifests itself in outward practices. It's helpful to look at the description here in Titus 3.3. 3. See how it shows itself? There's six descriptions of unbelief. Foolishness, it's a rejection of God's authority over us. Disobedience, disregard of God's commands. We're led astray into false thinking about God and his promises and his goodness. In the end, though, it says we're slaves to various passions and pleasures. You know, the, the, the sinful nature that gives itself into whatever feels good, whatever it wants, no matter what God wants, and no matter how much we hurt ourselves or others in order to get it. He goes on to say that our interactions with others were full of malice, desire to hurt others out of envy. When we uh, don't want others to do better than us, we want to take them down a notch, elevating ourselves up to help us, make, just help us feel better about ourselves. And notice what it says, it talks about a, a mutual hatred between people. We were hated and we hated. That's what envy does. It sets us against one another. Instead of a life of mutual good, we want to tear each other down. And so this is not a very flattering picture of us, is it? Maybe it's one you even like to think about as being part of your life. Maybe you've been a Christian since you were a little child, and you don't remember times of great sin or, or, or great wrong living, and you praise God for that. And yet, it's still the Bible's verdict about us. You can turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. I don't have the screen on this, but in Romans 3, it really gives a great picture of this. Romans 3, uh, starting in verse 10, really gives another description of it. It says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. How many? Not one, right? None. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned astray. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Who's turned astray? All. Who does good? None. No one. If you jump down to verse 23, we're reminded of this really important biblical truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And so if you don't know this about yourself, you've not looked too deeply, you've not examined yourself in light of what God has shown in his word, because each one of us has these things in us, just coming, trying to get out, do some damage. We don't have to teach people to do wrong, we have to teach people to do right. And even then, the bad is so likely to come out of us. We need reminders of this. As we were confessing our sin this morning, I was thinking, you know, why is this a regular pattern of our worship? You know, because nowhere else in society does it ever remind it to, that, that our primary sin is before God. And not only, you know, do we have this place where we've been before him, but he's so forgiving and gracious to us in it. That's a reminder to us, a reminder of, of how much we need him. That we have sinned, right? And this is important because Jesus says that if you don't see that, he, he can't help you. Look at Luke 5, 31 and 32. I do have a screen for that. Luke 5, 31, 32. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we need to get Jesus' point here, that if we think we have no need of forgiveness, um, if we don't know that we've sinned, that we're going to think we're okay the way that we are, and that he can't help us. And Jesus came for those who know that they have sinned and to look for relief from guilt, look for relief from from shame of sin. And self-righteous people don't look for that sort of help. And they miss Jesus. 1 John 1.8 says the same thing. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, we can't be saved unless we have a recognition of our sinful nature. And so if we go back to Titus 3.3, we're reminded of this. We too were once. You know, those things were the dominant expression of our lives. Even if you've experienced great change, even if your great change happened when you were two years old, there's no place for pride when it comes to thinking about others. We all have that same sinful condition. That's a spot that you're in except for the grace of God. Again, that should bring humility to our lives, especially in dealing with others. You know, it wasn't that you were so smart or so good that you became a Christian. No, it was totally the sovereign grace of God at work in your life. Years ago, the Daily News of London, they ran an editorial, and they were asking their readers, what's wrong in the world today? It was the time of the, of the great author uh, G.K. Chesterton, And he wanted to answer that question. And his answer to this editorial went this, really short. It said, dear sirs, what's wrong in the world today? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. You know, and that fact should give us that great humility. What is wrong with the world today? It's me. It's me. It's my own sin. It gives us humility, but it also gives us some sympathy. You were trapped in sin until God rescued you. They haven't been rescued. If people act like unbelievers with all these things, we shouldn't be too surprised. Robert Murray McShane said once, I I once was a stranger to grace. We've all been strangers to grace at some point in our lives. That's why we can be witnesses. You know, we, we know things like why government is important. Because apart from grace, we'd be likely as anyone to take advantage of others. You know, what do you do in secret? We also know what it is to be insecure and to be envious of others. We know what it is to feel angry. We know that Jesus Christ calls us away from those things. And he gives us 
himself. He says, live for me. It's really important as we think about that, to, as we talk with our children about the moral decisions they face. You know, as parents, we need to be honest. As honest as we can about our own temptations, our own struggles, our own failures. Have you ever been angry? And has obedience to Christ led you in a different way? Did you find help from him? We need to communicate that we needed rescue. We needed Jesus to help us. It's because our faith is not just simply a moral improvement plan. Remember that it is God's rescue plan to save us from sin. It's also key to marriage, isn't it? We remember that, that when we marry someone, we're marrying another sinner. We're a sinner coming in to a relationship with another sinner. Redeemed by grace, but still bringing an old sinful nature along with us. We never act like the other person's the only person bringing problems into it. You know, we don't expect perfection in a marriage relationship, but faithfulness to work through life together and to grow together in that. So this gives an important perspective of ourselves, That's, and it's a good thing to have, but it, but it doesn't stop there. And thank God it doesn't stop there because it goes on to show the kindness that God has given to us. Despite our sin, God has acted with abundant compassion. That's where we see in verses four through seven. To remember what you've been given. <clears throat> Verse four starts off with, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, when you acted so badly, when your life characterized sin, look what God did, right? That's what he's showing us. When people act badly, you know, we think, well, they just need to be educated. Maybe they need better examples, better family policies. They need better help with self-esteem. But we see where the Bible goes. It fixes and fixates on the goodness and loving kindness of God. It wasn't our goodness, but his grace that saved us. This is really the third time that the word appeared appears, right? Third time that it shows Jesus Christ has come. There's been an epiphany. Jesus Christ has come into the world. And, and God did not uh, tell us to go up into heaven to find forgiveness, but he came down to save us. He sent Jesus to pay the penalty for us. Not on the basis of our good works. That wasn't the basis of our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reminds us of that. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. And what a, what a price he paid in order to save us from the sinful nature that controlled and condemned us. Jesus Christ died on a cross, taking our sins upon himself to forgive us. And that's salvation. It's forgiveness from the guilt of the past and the work of freeing us from that power. When he talks about justification, that's what he's talking about. We're justified, we're forgiven of the guilt of the past, that Jesus is his perfection, his righteousness, all that he did in his life and his death on the cross covers us. And we stand justified before his sight. You couldn't be good enough. That's gonna change the way we look at others. Instead of telling others to do better, that they will not be okay unless they do enough good things, to put up a set of expectations on them that we couldn't do ourselves instead of those things, we point and we remember the grace of God. They need Jesus. They need grace. We need Jesus. We need grace. 
That's where real power is. That's what, the, that's what the Apostle Paul learned. If we look at this passage in Philippians 3, 8, and 11, it talks about the comparison of a righteousness that comes from God and a righteousness that comes from his own good works. He says the only one that will satisfy is the one that comes from God. Philippians 3, 8, and 11. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus, he says. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order they may gain Christ and be found in him. Some of his good stuff there, the good stuff of his life. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Because where do we see the power of God working? It's in the gospel of grace, not in our own power, not in our own self-sufficiency, not in our own abilities, but the power of his resurrection, which brings life to dead people, which brings life to sinners, which turns people away from sin into Christ. And he shows where that power goes at the end of this verse, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He's willing to follow Christ in love and in service to the, the body of Christ and towards others because he knows he has a promise in that. See, if we think that our life, our meaning, our justification, our acceptance comes on what we do ourselves, that we will be impossible to live with, full of self-righteousness and arrogance. That's why it doesn't work to bring salvation, because if it worked, you wouldn't need God. You'd be good enough by yourself. And that's exactly what sin is, is saying you don't need God. But if it's the mercy of God, we see how much we've been given, and then we're able to show great mercy to others. You know, mercy, what a great quality of God. He does not treat us as we deserve to be treated. We're reminded the Bible is not a story of a good God who rewards good people for doing their best. And the story of the Bible is of a good God who pours mercy and grace on undeserving rebels and sinners, pouring mercy on them to bring them into his family. We see how, what he does here. He washes us. Do you see that the imagery of these verses here in, uh, in uh, Titus 3, 4 through 7? He washes us. This is we need cleansing, right? We're dirty with sin. We're dirty with iniquity. And then he renewed us by the Holy Spirit. As I was reading, I was just thinking of that picture, you know, maybe after a long day at work. I especially remember this in Cherokee, right? You know, if you go to Cherokee mission trip, you get all dirty and messy. You can be tired because you're out in the sun or whatever. And then you go back to the camp and you take a shower. And, and somehow, like, after you take that shower, you're renewed. You know, you were tired before it. You might be a little tired afterward. But just that renewal is... Is refreshing to know you're forgiven. What uh, the scripture is showing us here you're forgiven, you're washed, and then you're renewed, renewed to live your life for God. You're accepted. You've been made into a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 17 says, The old is gone, the new has come. So it, the gospel is not just making us into a religious people, but it's into a renewed people, a transformation of the whole heart, transformation of the whole person. We're made alive again. And he's poured out grace upon us. I was like, I was like those words too. Right? How, did, how did it come? Because God poured out grace. It's just a, a picture of generosity and overflowing blessing. Right? You know, it's, it's, the, the image of pouring is this idea that, that something is set apart for the purposes of God. And God has set us apart and filled us to do his work here. To do good, to do good deeds. And that's why we can and should do good, good deeds for others. 
and there, you know, wherever our lives take us. It's because we're filled. We have a purpose. We already know love. We already know joy. And if we know those things for ourselves, if we're overflowing with them, they're being poured out richly upon us, then we have something to give others. If you're an overflowing cup, then grace keeps coming. And as if you're an overflowing cup, you have something to offer, right? We get into the grace of God knowing what he's done. And the world is looking for these things. We have our broken families. We have our past sufferings. We have our bad decisions. And the world keeps searching for solutions through money, through power, acceptance, but not from God. They end up envious and angry. There's a constant conflict without any desire to reconcile. Where does sin and evil come from? It comes from a heart that's not reconciled with God. Maybe you remember when you were there. Maybe you remember when you had nothing. Maybe you remember when the very things you thought would make you happy, that they failed you. And then you found Christ, or, or, or better yet, he found you, right? You were the one that was lost. He wasn't lost. He found you. Do you live like that? Do you live like Jesus has filled you up? Or do you live like you're still looking for the thing that will make you complete? If you're still looking for something to make you happy, you haven't found the true filling grace of Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, because he shows where to go as we seek this. You want power? Do you want to know what it means to be, to be filled and overflowing, to be able to do good works? We ask God. We continually ask God for this. Jesus said this about prayer. If then you who are evil know how to good, give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Right? You're forgiven, justified heir of the kingdom. And because you have these wonderful promises, your future is secure in Christ. And that's going to change the way we interact with people. Even people who are different than us. Even people who are hostile to us. We don't live in a way that, has, that we have to be right. That's because God has already made us right. We don't live like we have to get our way. Because Jesus is already taking care of our future. We don't have to prove that we haven't made mistakes. Because Jesus has already justified us covering our mistakes so we can be honest with them. How do you live with the craziness you might find yourself in? With humility. Because in ourselves, in our sinful human nature, we're no different. We live in sympathy because we know what it means to be trapped in sin. We live with confidence because we know the acceptance of God through Jesus Christ. We live in courage knowing that God has a plan, has a purpose that he set us aside for. And we live with generosity because we don't have to find all of life's meaning in the here and now. We're already part of God's kingdom, and we're being filled. That's what Jesus has done. That's what we do. We live ultimately as witnesses to the grace of God, through our love, our good deeds, and our message of hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we have our own trials in this life. We know we have difficult people. We have difficult laws. We all have to endure things that we do not like. God, we ask that you'd give us patience, seeing that you were patient with us, to show grace and forgiveness in the way that you have forgiven us. God, that you would turn us towards doing evil, to turn a, or that you would lead us in doing good and to turn away from doing evil and to find opportunities to do good around us that we can help others and to show others how they can be free and filled in the Lord.